Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. Steve Oaken in our chilly studios here in the lobby of Singapore Press Holdings. Chilly studios, but we're all kitted up in our in our gear, yeah. so we're we're ready to go. And I will say though, I woke up to very depressing news this morning. What's up? Succession is ending after this season. It is. I read that news mm. yesterday as well. One of the great TV shows of the last few years, HBO, the brilliant Brian Cox, just playing Rupert Murdoch, really. <laughs> but mm. we can't say he's playing Rupert Murdoch. But yeah, brilliant TV show. But they're right to wrap it up. They are right to wrap it up. Don't drag it on forever. But I'm going to be very intense watching this season. Absolutely. Great show. All right. Let's move on to our topics of the day. First, the Biden trip to Ukraine. Wow. what What an interesting path and journey he had to take. Totally under the radar in every way. Um Talk to us about that, Steve, and, and uh, probably by now everyone knows that he was there and 10-hour train trip and all that. Uh, but what was the outcome, do you think, or have we observed from that trip? Well, we don't know what the outcome, because this could go down from a U.S. presidential perspective as a historic event that people will remember forever. It, it could be in the pantheon with Ronald Reagan, you know, at the at the Berlin Wall saying, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It could be Nixon going into China meeting with Mao if Ukraine is to push out Russia from its territory and is to in it keep its territorial territorial sovereignty then this will be a historic event if on the other hand that there the war drags on for years and years and years and and there is no successful conclusion from a western ukrainian singaporean japanese perspective then this will be a great photo op a sense of daring by President Biden, but did it make a difference? And so history will tell. Well, that's exactly the point you make there, Steve. On the same day, or the same week at least, of course, China President Xi Jinping makes the announcement that we should have peace talks, which infer that we, I'm assuming it infers that existing boundaries are recognized. And there is a talk, there is only talk at this stage, speculation, that at some point China may align with Russia a little more closely. So does it seem, therefore, we're further away from this war ending than ever? The platitudinous peace plan. There you go. That is how The Economist described it, and I just thought, Neil, that you would love that alliteration. I do like a bit of alliteration (laughs) on a Saturday morning. Platitudinous, such a Neil Humphreys word. I mean, look, it's it's a 12-point blueprint. Point one says respect the sovereignty of all countries. And as Secretary of State Blinken said, well, just stop right there. You don't need any other points like all of this, you know, platitudes of abandoned Cold War mentality, stop unilateral sanctions. No, you need to get Russia out of Ukraine. Russia controls 20 percent of Ukraine right now. And until that ends, because right now Ukraine is going to decide when they are going to settle it's not going to work. And so we really aren't any further along with this 12-point peace plan that, that China put forth. It, it's not credible, um, in part because of what's in it and in part because of, of who made it. So we really aren't any closer to the end than we well, were before it came yeah, out. Yeah, let's, let's be fair, though, and let me devil's advocate this. Yeah, we don't know 
I mean, we know the points in the thing. We haven't seen what the reaction has been, if any, from, uh, you know, from Putin, for example. Um, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes in terms of the reasons why China is doing this. But if there is somebody at this moment that Russia will listen to, it's probably going to be China. So should this be given a chance to develop? I think it absolutely should be. If there is a way that that there can be some sort of peace talks happening. Now, we don't we don't know what the outcome would be or what the rules of the engagement would be for that. But I say, hey, let's give it a chance. Uh, look, you Glenn, I, look, I, I think it's ridiculous to say that you can have someone pro- broker a peace deal that only talks to one side. It has been a year. Of course. Xi Jinping has never talked to President Zelensky. So, of course, you can have a, pro- yep. a brokered peace agreement. You could have a country like Turkey do it. You can have uh, a, a, you know other countries, maybe India, maybe a, a country like India could do it. Turkey's seem to indicate that it has some ability to do so, that it has relations on both sides. But but for China to say they are going to broker a peace plan is not credible. It, it's no more credible than the United States right now saying that it is going to broker a peace plan sure. because both the United States and China have set out their positions on this. Well, and, let's let's and also remember they haven't said they're going to. They're just offering to try to be a go between, which has neither been accepted nor rejected at this point. So I mean, we still have a way to go on this plan, which has just come out a couple of days ago. I, again, right? I don't think we have anywhere to go on this plan, mm-hmm. I, and it because it isn't setting forth something where Ukraine is going to buy into it. And if, if anything, you, you see China trying to have it both ways. China's trying to say, we're going to present ourselves publicly as neutral and seeking peace. At the same time, they've completely taken up Russia's narrative of the war. They don't call it a war. They call it a special military operation. They've been providing non-lethal support. And now, from everything that the U.S. has put forth, they're contemplating lethal support. If that happens, if China is to put lethal support for the Russians in their Mm. battle with Ukraine, and German newspapers have, have put forth how they are thinking about doing that right now, it is going to be much more worse because you're going to see sanctions not just against Russia, but against China as well. And that's, I don't think we're any further along to solving this than we were before China put forth this plan. And just to be even more depressing, I was reading this week, of course, that the sanctions are no longer hurting Russia with quite the intensity that we hope because they're still dealing openly with China, as you mentioned, with India and with Turkey. Of course, there is an argument that the sanctions are hurting the Western nations more. They're certainly hurting the UK supply chains, Germany is quite, you know, is dependent on to a large degree on its uh, energy supply from Russia. And there's even talk, Steve, I'm sure you've read that Russia's economy is slowly recovering, which would suggest that the, A, the sanctions are not working and he's doing just fine with his support from Russia and India. And and I think that's why if, if, if I didn't look back, but if we look back a year ago when we I'm sure we talked about this, I don't think any of the three of us would have predicted that this would have gone on for a year that something would have happened one way or the other. Now, as we approach, we're now at the one-year anniversary, do we think we're going to be back here a year from now? Assuming we're all still here, of course. Do we think we're going to be back a year from now talking about going into year three of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? 
I would I think probably we would say it is still going to be going on because China is buying all of that discounted Russian gas and oil. So China's benefiting from the sanctions because the price of Russian gas and oil goes down. China's buying it. And so that's helping China. And then there's reports that China is then selling the excess oil into Europe and making a profit on it. And so it isn't getting any better. Sanctions aren't working as people thought they might have. There was another article. A Guardian, among others, that talked about is this conflict realigning a new world order? And you saw the article, Stephen, and are familiar with it. What, what's your take on? First of all, is that happening? What is it? What would that new world order be? And 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 is it bound to happen? Well, kind of think about it three ways. So there's the existing rules-based international system that was certainly, you know. The the architects were, were, you know, the United States, Britain, France, you know, coming out of, you know, in post-war and into the the 70s and 80s. So that's the existing uh, world order. Putin is an arsonist. He just wants to burn that world order down. Um, Xi Jinping thinks of himself more as an architect to design a new world order. And that's the question is, are we going to maintain this international rules-based system under the rules that exist today? Are we going to just have no rules whatsoever, which is what really Putin wants? And when you say we're not going to respect the sovereignty of any country, that's the whole basis upon a a rules-based order. That's the foundation. That's why countries like Singapore have sanctioned Russia outside of of the UN. And then you have China saying, let's have a different system. Let's let's revise the existing order. Let's craft a new one. And we want to be the center of that new one. That's what's playing out right now. And it is a very... Uh, it's a it's a very difficult and tenuous time to try and read what's going to happen next. What's going to happen to the World mm-hmm. Trade Organization? What's going to happen to free trade agreements? What's going to happen to the respect for sovereignty? All of those things are up in the air right now. To try and bring both points together, I do see where Glenn's coming from. Nobody wants this war to go on forever. So any form of peace talks any form at a superficial level should be welcomed. On the other hand, you've got President Zelensky saying yesterday, we will not stop until every Russian troop is out of our country. And bringing it back to Singapore, our prof- uh, how, uh, what's his current title? Ambassador at large, uh, Tommy Coe, wrote a piece in the Straits Times, I think yesterday, basically saying what the repercussions are for countries like Singapore if the Russian troops do not instigate a full withdrawal if they're allowed to take any of ukrainian territory in any way shape or form the repercussions for singapore for taiwan and for other sovereign nations in the in the world is very troubling steve well and and if if you kind of think of the model of of what could happen right one model would be you know north and south korea that war never ended Right. I mean, that was a there's a ceasefire, but there's not a truce. Um, And you have South Korea's, you know, borders are protected by the United States. The South Korea exists because of the military commitment of the United States. Then you have Israel is another option, right, where where Israel has been, relatively speaking, at at peace after after a series of wars in its neighborhoods because of the security that they the security commitments they received from from the United States and so you've had relatively speaking you don't have the open hostilities that you you've had before so the question is what's going to happen 
with Ukraine? Is it going to be a are they going to join NATO? Um, is it going to be that there's not a truce, but we're going to have some type of ceasefire? What type of security concerns uh, will, will security guarantees will will Ukraine have? What will Russia permit? All of this has got to get worked out. And it's not going to be people like China and, and or, or frankly, the United States saying what's going to happen. What are the Ukrainian people going to say? Are they going to say we want to have our all of our of our territory back? Does that include Crimea? That's a decision for for the Ukrainians. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Let's um, track that one. Keep moving on. The next topic is going to be about the Hong Kong Singapore price war yeah. and what's happening with uh, with the prices of a variety of things, but not the least of which is real estate. Um, where are we at on the price war between the two now that Hong Kong is reopening and you know some people are actually going back to Hong Kong and and you know because it's finally coming out of their COVID, but there's still a lot of other issues. Look, I, the, the headline of the FT this week was Singapore's soaring ex pet rents undermine um, the bid to oust Hong Kong as a finance hub. I think that is categorically incorrect. I don't think that the soaring expat rents have anything to do with financial services wanting to come to Singapore to set up their operations. What is driving the financial services to come here is what has happened in Hong Kong. It is that Hong Kong is now just another Chinese city. It's as one of my friends says, it's it's now a suburb of Shenzhen, right? That is that is what Hong Kong is. So there are reasons to be in Hong Kong. But you are not going to be there um, for a lot of businesses because it is now a Chinese city. You have to worry about the national security law. You have to worry about sanctions that have gone on against against um, against the Hong Kong leaders because of what they have done in terms of the democracy activists and, and, and who they have thrown in jail and that they're not respecting human rights. That doesn't change because rents in Singapore are skyrocketing. Mm. <laughs> so so the the. The Singapore versus Hong Kong to be a financial hub has nothing to do with the fact that rents are going up because that doesn't change anything about what's happened in Hong Kong. It absolutely impacts a lot of people. We know people who have left or are leaving Singapore because they can't afford the rent anymore and they're going to go be a, a, a you know a, a virtual nomad in Bali and then fly in and out when they need to. They're going to move to Phuket because you have not only cheaper housing but you have good international schools that aren't that expensive. So yes, people are leaving but they're going to be replaced by the people who are coming in who can afford it. And it's going to change a lot of what the expat community here is. It's going to impact Singaporeans as well because there's going to be a increase in rents because as people leave the expat housing areas where they are now, they're going to move into HDBs. So then the price of the rents of HDBs are going to go up and that's going to impact Singaporeans. Huge impact. It's not changing the battle on where the financial hub is going to be. Let's stay with that because I read that piece and others. You know, a tiny percentage of Chinese multimillionaires is more than enough to swamp Singapore. You know, there's plenty willing to come in, pay all kinds of rent, international schools, car prices. They are almost immune to any kind of increase. What does that make Singapore look like? And I'm slightly surprised it's gaining traction in the media, yes. Hasn't been any kind of 
government cooling measures yet specifically. But what does this potentially look like, Steve? Does the rich-poor divide get wider? Are there social economic repercussions to this for Singapore? Yeah, I mean, of course, it 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 gets it, the the rich poor gets wider. Um, it also means that the the expats here and Singaporeans alike who are paying more of their disposable income towards rent, it means they're going to be spending less in other areas like restaurants or activities for their kids. Now, of course, no one's going to stop the tutoring here because everybody, it doesn't matter whether an expat tuition or a Singaporean, right? I yeah. see Max putting his head down. I'm sure he gets tons of tuition. So everybody gets, that's not going to get hit, but it's going to be, do you play soccer? Do you take ballet lessons? Do you take taekwondo lessons? Those those types of, of enrichment, that could get, that's the disposable income that you could start spending less on. Do you take piano lessons or drum lessons or all of those things? So there's going to be that impact. And, and so it's going to be felt far and wide. I think what people are trying to look at now is there's been a construction delay because of COVID. So as more units come online, is that going to bring pricing down a little bit as is Singapore going to allow as many um, expats and foreign workers in? Are they going to lower the the you lower the demand there? Then that's going to lower the prices. So things are still playing out, but right now rents are skyrocketing and it's it's hitting everybody. I just wanted to add yeah. to that, if I may, yeah, sure. I'll give you a breather there. Yep. At what point does this greediness stops? Okay, I've read the stories anecdotally. You know, they're getting tenants come up to you, coming up to landlords and saying, you, you, you want five grand? I'll give you six. You want six grand? You, I'll give you seven. So the superficial argument is, how can landlords possibly turn this kind of money down? But it's greedy, yes. But there has to be repercussions there, right? Because I mean, unless the landlords are spending all that money back into the Singaporean community, it's going to trickle down and affect everybody from the nurses to the, the manual laborers. Everybody rents something somewhere, right? Right. No, I mean, that's and I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, do is this a problem of greed of landlords? Why shouldn't the landlords be able to get the market price for their property when prices are going down? Do people say, oh, the landlord should, um, you know, the, the, the landlord shouldn't that that impacts the landlords. They have to pay. Should the landlord say, no, you have to pay more because it's unfair to me. You're asking for too low. No, you say that's what the market is. I'm going to pay you that. You know, in this the uh, there was in this FT story, you know, a woman named Emma, you know, her rent in, in Sentosa went from 7000 to 14000 And she said when they tried to negotiate, the landlord said, well, just go look in other suburbs. Mm-hmm. I, so what is the landlord supposed to say? Oh, I, I feel really bad for you. I'm going to take less money myself because your business and your employer isn't, isn't making up the difference. I, I don't have sympathy you know, for, yeah. for that argument. But it's really. not like the cost of living has doubled, right? You know, usually you expect a decent increase, a two, three percent cost of living increase every year. And, and that's where I think that's where I have trouble with the whole rent in, increase thing, because it's just a money grab. Market forces are what they are. Yeah. Uh, but it's not like it's not like landlords have to raise their rents that much. They it's don't greed. have to. Pure and simple. You know, it's they could raise it a couple grand or whatever. As I mentioned in previous shows, my landlord was amazingly reasonable. We had a, a good discussion. He decided it was better to keep me in the apartment for two more years uh, than to have to go through all of the changes and all that. So, 
Well, hey, Neil, I, I'm sure you know where the phrase greed is good <laughs> comes Gordon from. Gordon Gecko. Yeah, and, Wall Street. Uh, so, I mean, but they get, what, the business isn't supposed to make as much money, and a landlord's a business. I mean, that's their investment property. They're not sure. supposed to make as much. Look, the government needs to decide, should it step in? New that's, York City has said, we aren't going to allow greed. We aren't going to see people get kicked out. We want to see neighborhoods that are mixed, so we're going to have rent control. There are ways that, that government can step in when market forces get get out of control. And, and one of the quotes in that FT article was, and this is from a realtor, he said, look, Singapore's small size means when you apply temperature, things boil fast. Mm. <laughs> and that's what's happening here. Mm. You get a little bit of an increase in, 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 who's, in, in the number of expats coming on employment passes. You get a large increase in the amount of wealth that they're bringing with them, especially from from a little bit north of here. Um, and then prices go way up because things boil fast right. here. All right. We got to leave it there. Steve, thanks so much. We will uh, see you next weekend. And I will be on with Elliot on, on Monday. So if you haven't had enough of, of me in this, in this scintillating conversation, scintillating. Monday at 4.15 for the Washington Report, my third week in a row. There you go. All right. All right. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> International News Review. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.